Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zo and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. This week's message is brought to us by Pastor Ashanti Petaway, who is the Director of Network Partnerships for the Chicago Partnership. He's preaching from Psalm 69, 29 through 33. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm a Moody alum, so just out of habit, and plus my just preaching background, I always have found it necessary. Whenever you go into a sermon to preach, you got to get some background. It just helps to know, especially when you're in a psalm like this. This is a very large psalm, and we just kind of catapulted from one and jumped all the way to verse 29. So the psalms in general, I want to let you know, are, are a beautiful uh, form of poetry, or even sometimes considered music to your ear, that were often sung. This book of the Bible is, is, is one of the most well-known, most quoted, and probably the most tattooed Bible uh, sections uh, known to man. And of the many books of the Bible, 69 is one of the 73 attributed to King David. Despite the countless hours of research and study done by theologians and scholars abroad, uh, they have been yet unable to determine the exact circumstances of today's text. Like what was actually, what was the issue going on in David's life? But one thing we know about David just in general, he had enough drama in his life that we could just pick a spot. (laughs) There were plenty of opportunities to look at and explore as to why he might be in the situation he has now. He is a man who is not unfamiliar with drama And in this psalm, he comes to speak and share his heart to the people of God of how we are to engage the Lord in spite of our tribulation. And believe it or not, in the New Testament, chapter 69 is quoted at least 10 times. It's probably the most quoted psalm within the New Testament. And I want to give us a backdrop of what has already been said in the text. And so I'm going to read a few verses, not all of them, but I'm going to read some of them just to give you these snapshots to give you the posture, the mindset, and heart of David at this time. He opens up the text saying this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I seek in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. There's this idea he's just consumed. He can't get his foot grounded. And you know what it's like when you're trying to move around and your, your, your footing is not solid. And he's saying this water is consuming him. And he says, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. He's cried out so much that it's made him weary. And he doesn't even have anything left in his throat. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More is the number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. So he's saying, I've got my own issues, but I'm also being attacked by others who are taking joy in my tribulation. Verses 10 through 12, he goes on to say, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth in my clothing, I I became a a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkard makes songs about me. So he's saying, listen, now not only am I going through issues and people are talking about me, they're even making songs. <laughs> I've become the, the, the bar tune of the light of the night. And so they're singing songs about my issues and my hardship and taking joy in it. And then this is what he says in 19 through 21. It says, you know my reproach. And my shame and my dishonor, 
My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart. So that I am in despair, I look for pity, but there was none. And for comfort, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. David is at this moment also acknowledging that some of what I'm going through is my fault. I'm acknowledging my reproaches, my sin, my follies, and I'm recognizing the shame and dishonor I feel in this moment because of my sin and how it weighs down on me. And this is what sets the scene for where we are now within the psalm. David lamenting, weary and oppressed from his own personal sin, the shame that comes with it, the oppression that comes from those who take joy in his hardship. And he's saying, Lord, I'm here before you. I need you. Now, one thing I want us to know before we go any further is that when we look at David, he is also what is called a foreshadowing. David serves as a foreshadowing of what was to come. And that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the children of Israel wanted a king because they saw the other nations had one. They were not satisfied with being led by the Spirit of God, walking, living intimately with God. They said, we want what the other nations have. And so they selected their king. Saul, who let them down and led them astray. And then, through the prophet Samuel, God speaks and says, man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart, on the inside. And he says, anoint David, the forgotten child who wasn't even brought (laughs) for the ceremony to find out who might be king. And he serves as the example of the king of Israel so that he can be the one who saves the land. Now, ultimately, he falls short of that. But again, he is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does. And you may say, Ashanti, why are we talking about Jesus in this moment? Because we see this introduction of the foreshadowing in these very first verses that we address here in verse 29. In this expression of pain and an expectation of hope, he says this, But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. When we think about affliction... Affliction is a, something that is cause of persistent pain, a distress. Sometimes it can be mysterious. Sometimes it, it can just be a physical or it can be something mentally. And pain and a, a affliction are both one of those things that attack in a multitude of ways. But in the poetic and prophetical books, they often return, uh, should I say, refer to this idea specifically of mental anguish of mental hardship, of mental struggle, of saying, I don't know how to keep it all together. And the psalmist says here that, but I am afflicted and in pain, but he makes this transition, this shift that is quite amazing. But when we think about this idea of affliction and pain, and we think of the foreshadowing of David and Jesus, let us be reminded of what Jesus experienced in the garden. He had this moment where he felt this significant affliction and pain, this mental anguish as he prepared to head to the cross. Now, David says next, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. It's this idea, he says, Lord, I actually believe you're going to deliver me. And because I know and believe you're going to deliver me, allow it to set me above whatever I'm feeling and experiencing. Not that I actually feel like I feel better, but I'm going to rest in the truth that you through your salvation are lifting me up higher. 
lifting me up on high. When we think again about Jesus, after his suffering mentally with anguish, as he watched his disciples even forsake him, as he watched those who he created in the beginning, as he picked up dust and breathed life into, as he watched those who he gave birth to crucify him or take him towards the cross, he has to deal with this anguish. And then ultimately, what has he done? He's raised up, arms stretched wide, and his blood leaks for our sins. So that what, Dan, what David couldn't do in being a perfect king, Christ fulfilled in the cross. But I want you to understand, we could look at salvation and say, okay, well, this is a beautiful thing. Salvation is just Jesus on the cross. No, salvation is even greater than that. Because if he does not rise, how is he God? People know how to die. Romans had crucified people for years. That was not a new practice. But it's because he rose again from the dead that David and all of us now can have hope because he was risen on high. And then in Acts, it speaks of how he ascended to heaven. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the beautiful salvation that we have as believers. But I also say to those who may not know Jesus personally, this is a beautiful salvation that is free to you. It costs you one thing and one thing alone, faith. Willing to walk in faith and give up your life to take on a new one. We as believers must remember that in our affliction and pain, we don't deny that it exists. We acknowledge that it exists. We communicate that to God just like David did in this psalm. But then we hold fast to remember that we have this salvation that comes from God that will set us on high. It is our ability then to stand strong in hardship because we know who our Savior is. As we think about this great salvation and acknowledgement of hurt and what God does through us, through, through His Son, the psalmist gives us something else that is, is beautiful it's this idea, he, he's going to explain to us worshiping power. Now, I know that we have various understandings of worship, but I, I want us to recognize something that worship is not just singing of songs. Worship is a holistic life, which includes singing of songs. So, so let us not get lost in that nuance. But the text says this, I will praise the name of God with a song. So he's very specific here. He's saying that I am singing a song of praise to God. I will magnify him with what? Thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox. This or, or a bull with horns and hooves. Think about what is being said here. David is saying, listen, I've acknowledged my hurt. I'm hoping in the salvation that I know is to come, the deliverance from God. But then you know what the first thing I'm going to do? I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to consider it. I'm not going to deliberate with friends and loved ones. He says a very clear statement of what he's going to do. He says, I will praise the name of God with the song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. These aren't optional for him. He's saying these are my mandates of exactly what I want to do. These are the instructions when we're in times of danger. 
So just like you prepare for the earthquake, the flood, the tornado, and you follow the instructions, David is saying through the power of the Holy Spirit, one of your instructions, children of God, in tribulation, in hardship, in dangerous circumstances, is you need to praise the name of God with a song, and you need to give thanksgiving. Praise must be remembered in this way. Praise is not only a command, but it is a privilege. See, oftentimes we we don't see it as as a privilege. And honestly, I don't even think sometimes we see it as a command. We see it as an option. But when I tell you, Scripture speaks of praise and worship of God and magnifying of the Lord significantly throughout, from Genesis to Revelation. It is our personal preferences that often push that down. God, our God, is big on praise. Our God is big on thanksgiving. And then when you look at this, praise is something, if you look at Strong's Concordance, it's uh, the Hebrew word shabak, which means to address with a loud tone, to commend, praise, glorify, triumph. It's an expression in just the Webster Dictionary. It says an expression of approval or admiration to extol or offer grateful homage to God with song. And so in the English Dictionary and in the original Hebrew text, what is the common theme we see here? We must open our mouths and give praise to God. Now, I know this is not always easy to do. Giving praise to God is not something that we always feel like doing or, quite frankly, want to do. There are times where I'm just like, Lord, I don't feel like praising because I'm mad at what life is bringing me right now. Uh, Quite frankly, instead of praising, can you just change the situation? (laughs) That's a good idea to me. But what God calls us to do is say we have to push beyond what we feel. We have to push beyond what we want, push beyond our desires and say, you know what, God, if you did nothing else, the fact that you died for my trifling self, for my struggling, backsliding self at times, for we were enemies to God prior to salvation. But while we were yet enemies, what did he do? He died for us. And that alone should cause us to give praise and thanksgiving for the rest of our lives. Please hear me when I say this. I know this is a concept and I understand that it is often easier said than done. But just because it's easier said than done doesn't mean we don't do it. We must rest in his salvation. Now, for some of you, that may require you going back and looking at some old pictures, reading some old journal entries, talking to some old friends, talking to your parents, and looking at where you were, and then looking at what he has done and where you are. It should bring praise and thanksgiving out of your mouth. Now, what's amazing about this is that 
David is very clear in this next statement, which quite frankly is mind-blowing with what he says. He says this, I want to praise his name with song. I want to magnify him with thanksgiving. And he says, this will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Now, we must understand the significance of what this says here. Because in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices were common. And these uh, animal sacrifices were used to make atonement. So that's a theological term in Scripture. You'll see it in Scripture. It's this idea of cleansing of impurities. So for individual sin, in order to gain acceptance back with God, to be brought back into communion with Him because He cannot be around sin, they would offer up an animal. The particular animals that were spoken of here, these are high and lofty animals. These are things to be valued and significant because they say, hey, Lord, I'm bringing you my best in this moment so this animal can be a representative of me. They would lay their hands on the animal, and then when the animal died, it would die for their sins. It was the offering made to the Lord. Ultimately, those offerings fell short, which is why in God's grace and His mercy, He sent His Son to be the perfect atonement for us all, to make final purchase for us. But listen to what he says. He says, Lord, you would be more pleased with my praise and thanksgiving to you than you would even be with the sacrifice that I make. And my argument is this. The reason why the psalmist can say this is because he recognizes that in his praise and thanksgiving, the idea of confession and repentance is a natural part of the process. You can't praise God and thanks God when you don't acknowledge first your issue with God. My brokenness sits before the Lord. And I can't get in a posture like, thank you, Lord, hallelujah, praise, and not confess and recognize, Lord, I'm broken before you. So if you've ever wondered why you see people crying in service sometimes, it's because they recognize their brokenness and say, Lord, I am messed up, but I cry out because I am overwhelmed with joy, and I cry out in tears because of what you have done and say that you will still welcome me in. And because Christ has made the perfect sacrifice, and now we, for those of us who have confessed him as Lord, we can rest in that. And as we rest in that, let us also remember we must give praise and thanksgiving because if we sit here and say we rest in the salvation, but we don't praise and thank him for it, it is as if we don't even have it. Because what I will argue is this, is that, listen, as you're living your life, when you're in your lowest moments, that's one of the things that attacks you the most, is that, listen, I don't feel the salvation that I felt when I first got saved. But what, what praise and thanksgiving does is it allows you to hold on to the truth of the salvation even if you don't feel like it. The psalmist makes it clear of what we are to do. But this is the beautiful thing. The trial of the psalmist will not be wasted. He will actually become a lesson for others who seek God to show them what happens when you praise the Lord. Section 3, verses 32 through 33, it says this, as an example of praise that testifies to God's goodness. He says, when the humble see it, they will be glad. You who see God, who seek God, 
Let your hearts revive. For the Lord has hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Now, this praise that David gives is a, dem- a demonstrative expression. Now, I know you may say, Shanti, why are we going here again? Because I think it's that important that sometimes we think, oh, I can just praise God on the inside. <laughs> but what does the text say? The text says something very clear. Language is important, people. When the humble see it, he's talked about praising God with song, magnifying him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord. When, what is it that they have to see? Because he has not made a sacrifice. But what he's saying is, my outward demonstrative expression of praise and thanksgiving is what they see. And when they see it, it will make them glad. Think about this. I know that we live in a world where we often consider the fact that, you know what? My life is about me. It's just about what I've got to get done. I've got to be in my, even, even as walking with Jesus, we say, I've just got to make sure I'm being walking in righteousness and holiness, and I've got to live. Nobody can judge me but God. There are all these nuances that we walk in, coming to church every Sunday, that we actually believe it's just about me and Jesus, my own personal relationship. But Scripture has never, ever, 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 ever made that a priority. Communion as a body with the Savior has always been the centerpiece. Israel moved as a body, as a nation. The New Testament church moves as a group. Acts speaks of how what? They had all things in common and sold their things so that they could all be together so no one lacked anything. This is not an individual walk. And so what we must realize is that as we are experiencing God, as we're walking through our storms, as we're going through our hardships, we must extol, express our praise and thanksgiving to the Lord outwardly. Now, I know what somebody's going to possibly say. Nobody in here, but somebody who might be somewhere else in a far, far land. Somebody might say something like this, but you know what? This isn't a part of my culture. You know, this isn't, this is, you know, this isn't, this isn't how we get down. You know, this is like, I know this is what some of y'all do, but this is not how we do it. And so I know Jesus loves me as I am, so I'm going to do as what's comfortable for me and how he made me. And although I recognize the culture has nuances uh, that impact how we live life, how we see the world, this is both ethnically and family cultures. Uh, But I believe, and I believe it's okay to celebrate. I think it's okay to celebrate some of our ethnic cultures, some of our family cultures that differ from others. However... Our culture should never triumph our faith, meaning that we can't have such an allegiance to our culture that we choose it over a directive from God. And see, listen, I'm not going to go through a whole list of every verse that talks about, oh, praise the Lord, magnify the Lord, open your mouth, celebrate him with thanksgiving. You can do your concordance and just look up the word praise, and I promise you, or thanksgiving, and you will find all the text, the proof text to make sure I'm saying the right thing after service. But one thing is clear in Scripture is he's saying, praise me and not quietly open your mouth and celebrate my goodness. Now, that does not mean that you don't have times where your outward expression may be where you are somewhat quiet. There are times where you are quiet before the Lord. But I'm saying that 
it's got to be a combination. You can't be quiet all the time. I know you may not have the boy, best voice. I got a singer. I just can't sing. But I still sing praises to the Lord. There are times when, listen, okay, I'm getting in trouble here. I have been in cultures that feel so oppressive when it comes to opening our mouth and being expressive demonstratively of our, our appreciation of the Lord that I've actually conformed. So in this season of life, after the church I got saved in where my pastor taught me how to praise and worship the God it outwardly, which was huge for me as a man of being able to cry and weep before the Lord, being willing to shout, being willing to, to sit quietly, to be, to be able to come down to the altar and bow before him. All those things I learned that when I came into other cultures, that wasn't okay because it wasn't the cultural norm. That Quite frankly, I'm, I'm working out of it to fight to get back to what I knew to be true. So I'm preaching to myself in this moment. And we cannot allow our comforts Again, our cultural nuances to deprive us of what God has for us. I know you may say this or be concerned, well, that's just not me. Listen, I promise you, when you allow yourself to be free before the Lord, you will be shocked at what comes out of your mouth. <laughs> to my man, you will be shocked at the tears that flow if you haven't cried in years. Or you're the type of guy who only cries when it's a funeral or the Cubs win the World Series. You'll be shocked at yourself and say, oh, I, I had no idea where this emotion came from because you've now sat under the Lord giving him praise and thanksgiving and this Holy Spirit moves on you and you're like, oh my goodness, what is happening? And I guarantee you when you taste it, you'll say, I never want to lose that again. And because I've tasted it, I'm saying, Lord, I've got to do whatever I've got to to allow myself to be broken before you so that I can then reignite what I allow culture to take away. This is beautiful here because what happens when they see it? They will be glad. And then he tells them, you who seek God, let your hearts revive. Now, why would he tell them this? Because what he's trying to communicate is this. Just like you saw me seek God. Remember, he's the king. So the people are seeing him, watching him. As I seek God, I want you to know that I'm going to guarantee you that your hearts will be revived. It's not, it might. I'm saying, you who seek God, let your hearts revive. Because I know, based off experience, that God is going to be faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promises, and he will keep them no matter what. David wants us to know that God is faithful, and he is faithful, remains the same, and will never change. And this is the beauty of it as we continue in the final verse. He says, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. There are times, and I'm going to step out on a limb. For you all here in this church, who have been members here for over the last three to five years, there have been times where you have probably felt needy. And you guys have cried out to the Lord with tears, with groaning, with words, or even frustration. And you've questioned 
whether or not God hears you. Earlier in the chapter in Psalm 69, even David says, you know, I I called, but I heard you you didn't respond in a timely fashion. I didn't hear from you. I'm crying out, and I need you. And, And you feel needy. You feel desperate. And then what can happen is this, is that in your desperation, in your frustration of not being responded to in a timely fashion or in the way that we expected, then we then turn in frustration and say, God, whatever. Because you're not coming through. But what the psalmist is saying to us here is that, listen, regardless of what you feel, the Lord hears you. He hears you in need. He hears you in pain. And what he says is this, he does not despise his own people. You may be prisoners to the circumstance, prisoner to the emotion, but what he's saying is, listen, I am here and I hear you. And listen, I have already set you free. Not, I will set you free. He has already set us free. And that's the problem with feelings and emotions. Emotions and feeling can make us feel like right now this is what's going on. And it is the truth. But Scripture tells us what the truth is. And despite how you feel today, tomorrow, or in the future, or how you felt in the past, God is saying, I hear you. You're my child. I don't despise what I have called mine. I don't despise what I, God the Father, sent my son to die on the cross for. And then I raised him in resurrection power. I don't despise my creation. I hear you. We are his people. He hears our cry. And even when we're imprisoned in our own emotions, we must look to our Savior to restore, to heal, to give us what we need to persevere. As we looked at this chapter, I think it's one of the things where I imagine, what would the church be like today if we would have actually taken on the posture that David did. I say the church, I'm talking about holistically. All of us, we, again, are not individual silos. We are a body. We don't get to separate ourselves like, oh, I, I ain't part of their church. No, no, we are the church. Even with all our dysfunction, we're still part of it. We're, we're, we're family. Imagine if we, as indiv- individuals and corporately, we confessed and really owned up to our sins like David did. What would happen then? I think over the last 12 plus years, especially in light of some of the politics that have taken place, of how our witness has been questioned, (laughs) how our outward expression of how we live out our faith has kind of maybe put a, a, a foul taste or stench in people's mouths or nose. But imagine if we as a body said, listen, we're actually going to confess where we've fallen short. We're going to confess where we have allowed racism to be an issue. We're going to confess areas where we've been abusive and legalistic with those inside the body and those outside the body. We're going to confess the fact that, you know what, we've acted like we have it all together when in actuality we don't. Lord, we're going to confess before you and before man that we are actually broken, and in that brokenness we revel in it because we know that in our weakness your strength is made perfect. Imagine, I believe that what happens here would happen. People would see 
and be glad. For the believer, it would be an encouragement because when I'm down and I'm able to look at my brother or sister who's up, it actually draws me up. Listen, I have gotten a spiritual high off somebody else's joy. I've walked in the church frustrated and the passion in which the pastor has preached or the passion in which I've seen my neighbor worship has actually helped me get up out of my situation. But in the same way, I believe that the world who is trying to find a place, trying to figure out what they're doing, if they could see us and see us in our brokenness and then see us walking something different, they'd be like, what is it? How are you doing this? It's my prayer this morning that as we continue this journey, church, listen to me. God is not done with you. I know some of the locations, doors have closed, but you are still here. And God is not done. Set your eyes, knowing that his salvation will bring you high and that he is not done using you as the church. I know it's been hard, but don't stop. For those listening online and who may not be a part of this, I'm telling you, whatever's going on in your life, I know you want to quit. Don't stop. What I will say is this. Praise, give thanks, and trust in the truth of his word. And if you don't know him, go to his word. Seek him out. And I'm a product of an individual who says, Lord, show me who you are. And he did. And that's not exclusive to me. That's available to us all. Let us pray.